Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are looking forward to talking to you today because this is a call-in show. Would you write down our number and perhaps our email as well in case you want to send a picture of a plant or a bug or, you know, something to identify or diagnose as best we can? Our phone number is 845-5689. For those of you outside the area, 979-845-5689. And our email garden success at tamu dot edu garden success at tamu dot edu well it's starting to warm up and as it warms up plants begin to grow pretty quickly these are kind of the conditions that most plants are pretty happy in uh, they uh, when we get up in the 80s that's that's growing weather and of course now we're bumping 90s this week so it's starting to get eh. And we have this long, warm, hot season. For those of you who've been around, you know well what I'm talking about. Um, and I was reading about different kinds of plants and metabolic reactions and things like that. And I want to talk about that a little bit today. Um, but first, we're going to head to the phones and talk to Phyllis. Well, hello, Phyllis. Good afternoon. Good whatever uh, it yeah. is. Glad to talk to you. Yes, thank you. I have a number of crepe myrtles. And they have dead branches, and but they have a lot of leaves, too. And when is the time to take out those dead branches? Because in the winter, they all look the same. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, what I've been telling folks is wait to prune if you're not sure until it's new growth starts, and then the plant will tell you where to prune. And so... I would follow the dead down till you find a living bud, a little shoot coming out or a, a branch that has leaves on it, and prune just above that. Don't leave a stub, just prune, you know, just above that. Okay. Uh, there are some branches who uh, that have leaves, mm-hmm. and they're um, maybe 12 to 13 inches uh beyond that that's dead wood yeah that's right we're seeing a lot of that in fact i got an email and we'll talk about in a minute about it uh but that's that is it just uh, what i'm thinking the cause is is in december we had a hard freeze that hit when the plants weren't prepared you know we like our plants to go gradually into the cool season where they we call it hardening off they get ready for the cold get the antifreeze which is carbohydrates in their system and and they're ready to go but when freeze comes before they're ready it can do damage where otherwise that same plant species or variety would go through that amount of freeze just fine uh, but that's kind of what happened last december and we're seeing it on a number of different plants and it's a little bit of a surprise to me that crepe myrtles are being affected like they were, but they sure are. It's, it's a wide area, not just your yard for sure. Yeah. Oh, I am happy to hear that because uh, um, 
there are not many crepe myrtles in my neighborhood, and I thought, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. uh, what has happened? Yeah. And well, crepe's a tough plant, and, you know, they, in fact, the, the breeding program, one of the best breeding programs for crepe myrtles is in Washington, D.C., up in Beltsville, north of Washington. And so now I realize that's on the East Coast, but it's a lot colder than here, and they do just fine. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're, there's giant, beautiful ones up there. And so it, it's not the, the cold. It's the unpreparedness for the cold, I think. Uh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll have to somebody uh, have to find someone with a ladder. Yep, so. that's it. <laughs> yeah, and it you know it can be a little tedious if you've got a bigger one, but um, that that's probably the best thing to do. You know, every year we lose little twiggy growth, but it tends to just fall out. The little very ends of twiggy growth, maybe where blooms were and stuff. But uh, this is more serious, and you just have to cut back. Yeah. They'll be they'll be fine. Give them a little fertilizer, water it in pretty good, and with the weather we're about to that we are already having, they should take off growing really well. Oh. Thank you. Uh, we have 25, and so it's going to be a big job. Wow. Okay. Well, uh-huh. all right. Um, I better. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's and a And they're the very tall ones. So uh, anyway, thank you for your advice. You bet. You bet. Just make sure when they prune them, they um, prune them back to where that side branches that's alive and and don't leave a little stub like two inches out from there uh, cut them back to where where it is and that way when they grow back and get healthy they'll close over that area in time and uh, they won't have a, just a dead stub because they can't close over a dead stub right okay okay all right thank you all right thanks for the call phyllis i appreciate that yeah we we've seen a lot of that um this year and in fact, I got an, an email from, let's see, it was from Paul. And in Paul's situation, it's small crepe myrtles. And, the, you know, the branches are, I don't know, maybe thumb-sized, or the shoots, the trunks are maybe thumb-sized or something around there. And several of them don't have any leaves on them. And uh, then there's a one or two that have a little bit of growth on it. And then there's suckers coming out of the bottom. Now, normally, we trim all the suckers off a of crepe myrtle because once you have your branch structure, your your one to three or maybe more uh, trunks and then there's no need to have more stuff coming out of the ground but in in this case uh, paul with yours and other people who have that situation uh, a decision needs to be made so you you look at the one that's still alive uh, of the one or still has green or has green on it paul and in my opinion, looking at it, it's not very, very impressive in terms of the amount of growth that it has. So I think you could do one or two things. You could leave it and cut it back to where the growth is, which is basically one shoot. Uh, Or you could take them all out and just start back over from the bottom. You know, with the size of your plants and things, I think it looks like they're about maybe head high. Uh, There's no problem with just starting over. Uh, there's not any foliage to speak of you'd be taking away. If you want to keep that one that's alive, that's fine. Go ahead and keep it. Just cut everything back to it. Uh, and probably ultimately choose about three uh, that can be your main uh, trunks. You can go up to five if you want. Usually we do odd numbers just because aesthetically uh, it's most people's opinion that an odd number looks better than 
an even number, meaning three and five is better than four. Uh, but <laughs> that's that's uh, an opinion. It's not a horticultural issue at all. It's just an opinion. But anyway, choose some more and then get in there and fertilize them and uh, pull back that mulch you have. Get that fertilizer spread around on a small crepe myrtle like that. Probably, I'd, I'd probably fertilize it about two or three feet out in all directions. Apply a good quality fertilizer. There are fertilizers made for trees and shrubs, but I at my house use lawn fertilizer uh, because it's got a lot of nitrogen. I want to support new growth and it works just fine for me. My, my phosphorus levels are already high, which most yards around here are. Not all by any means, but most. But anyway, just fertilize it. I would say probably two cups of fertilizer uh, in that area, maybe a, maybe a cup and a half. I'm back off a little bit. And water it in really well, and then pull the mulch back over it, and just let's watch it go. I think we're supposed to get some more rain later in this week, and uh, that boost will, will get them growing, and you want this year for it to, to catch up and grow. I don't know how long the plant has been in the ground, but if it's been in the ground a while, it has a pretty widespread root system. It's not just that little cylinder of roots that came out of the nursery pot. And so with those roots, then all this new growth has plenty of, of um, root support to push fast new growth. And, but you do want to get leaves on it as quick as you can because the leaves are the food factories and those, that root system is not going to stay vigorous and robust without good foliage to uh, reciprocate, if you will. Water and nutrients go up from the roots. Uh, carbohydrates, the food of the plant, and other things go down from the leaves and so uh, are all through the plant from the leaves. Anyway, that's probably more technical stuff than you care to know about, but if a little boost like that will get it going. And you know, while I'm while I'm talking about that, it a lot of times when people are looking for trees, they want a tree that grows fast. This I'm moved away from crepe myrtles here, but a, but the principle I just described applies. Um, and it, you can buy a fast-growing tree and just plan on in about somewhere between 20 and 30 years, uh, probably it could even be sooner, uh, having to take that tree out because it's dying back, it doesn't look good, it's falling apart, and so on. And then you start over. Who wants to do that? Instead, why don't you buy a quality tree that has a decent growth rate? Now, there's nothing wrong with slow-growing trees, like a bur oak, for example. But one with a decent growth rate, red oaks fit into that category. A lot of the elms fit into that category, uh, and there are others. That tree will, if you will water and fertilize, take care of it, it'll grow pretty rapidly. Now, the, the most important thing you do when you have a young tree and you want it to grow rapidly is get the grass away from it, grass and weeds. If you were to interview the tree and say, how close should I have grass? It would say, I don't want to be able to see grass. I don't even want grass across the street in your neighbor's yard <laughs> because grass is a competitor. Grass competes with the tree for water and nutrients, and it is a marked difference in a plant and a woody ornamental that grows without that competition and that grows with it. Plus, and here's the, here's the uh, really closer on the deal, you cannot get up close with a lawnmower and weed eater without damaging the trunk. You just won't. You will eventually, something goes, you try to get that last grass blade or something, and, and now you've got a wound on the trunk that could become a canker and other issues. So get the grass away. If you only get it two feet away in all directions, that's good. But again, you talk to the tree. Trees are from forests. Forests, the soil around them is not grassy, and it's covered with tree leaves that are decomposing, and rich, rich forest soil. 
So you want to create something like that. So the wider that mulch bed, the happier your little tree is going to grow and the faster it's going to grow. Now, fertilizer is important, especially nitrogen, uh, for supporting good vigor and growth. Uh, but you don't want to overdo it. But it's not as important as getting rid of that competition. And uh, then, of course, watering is important. Now, we don't need to be watering our trees all the time. Uh, just a good soaking when they're going through a struggling time is fine. If it's a very young tree and doesn't have an extensive root system, yeah, water it more. Water where the roots are, though. They're not all over the yard yet by any means. They're just coming out of that cylinder you put in the ground. So you got to keep the cylinder wet. And then as we get a month or two in, you're wetting a wider and wider area. Uh, and so that's the way to have success. You can take a medium-sized tree that's a quality species that's adapted to our area, and you can hang a hammock in it a lot faster than you would think if you just take care of it like that. So that's just kind of a tip. It fit, really fits all woody ornamentals, but especially trees, because people want a big tree. They don't want, you know, they come home with a tree, maybe it's the size of a broomstick, uh, you know, one of those containers you can carry yourself. Uh, or maybe you really fork over the money and get a really big tree uh, that has to be uh, brought in with a forklift practically, uh, you know, because it's too heavy. But whatever you do, just take care of it early on like I'm describing, and I think you'll have really good success. Uh, our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email. You can reach me at garden success one word, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Send a photo of something. Uh, these ones I'm talking about on emails, most of them usually have a photo, and boy, that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, because when you tell me things or write me things and I picture them, they're probably not what you're seeing uh, with, that a photo would clarify. I was mentioning uh, that, well, the emails, uh, th I think I covered this one last week. In fact, I'm pretty sure I did, but I just want to cover it again just in case, because on my notes from last week, I usually write down all the callers and what they ask about. Uh, I don't have this, so here we go. Uh, Bradley had asked about a cherry tree, and uh, cherry, he'd heard that cherry trees do well here. And I want to be really clear that, that they don't. They do not. Uh, there are two types of cherries that we would grow for consumption Primarily, and that would be the sweet cherries, like a Bing cherry, you know, the maraschino type of a cherry. And then there would be the sour cherries, the tart cherries, typically for pies and other things. But neither of them do well this far south. We don't get enough chilling. Our winter erratic temperatures are hard on them, and they just, they just don't do well here. He mentioned there's native cherry. He heard there was native cherries, and they are. There is a, a native cherry you find in East Texas especially, but it goes wider than that. But it's little tiny berries, you know, bird food-sized berries, and uh, it's not that great. You make, I think you make pie out of it. I'm sure they're edible, uh, but it's not one you would plant for fruit. Now, you could plant it to feed the birds, to attract the birds. You like native plants, you could plant it. Uh, so nothing wrong with planting it, but if you want cherry fruit, uh, you need to go to the grocery store. Uh, that's going to be the best way to get it. We're going to head back to the phones now, and we're going to talk to Kenta. Hello, Kenta. Am I saying that right? Yes, Kenta, yes. Okay. Yes. Hello, how are you doing? Well, I'm well, thank you. Yeah. I have a plant. I think I sent the email, too. Uh, the attachment that is a flower plant. I'm not sure the name of it, but it at least looks like sick. It has yellow dots everywhere. 
and that spread to the other plant boosts what is near to that flower it might be hollyhock or something um I've sent you the email maybe I, two minutes before. Okay, I haven't seen it yet. It hasn't come through, but we'll talk just for a minute. So if you think it's a hollyhock, and let me ask you about the spots. Are the spots, if you turn the leaves, are you where you're with the plant right now, or is it somewhere else? Yes, I am. Turn the leaves over and look at the bottom and see if the spots uh, are kind of a rusty color, either yellow or rusty color, and if you rub them with your finger, it comes off on your finger. It is a yellow color. Let me check whether it is. <laughs> All right. This, this is gripping radio, folks. You are listening to live diagnosis. It's like one of those hospital shows where the patient's on the gurney and they're, you know, it's, it's touch and go at this point. So, <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I... Uh, okay. It doesn't sum up in my hand, but mm. it looks rusty. Rusty. Okay, good. Yes. I think you probably have a hollyhock. It, since you thought that's what it was, they are really prone to rust. They just get it. Mm -hmm. And you can spray, spray, spray to keep it away. Uh, there are sprays that are preventative, but once it's in the leaf, you, you're not going to kill it and make it go away. It's, it's already in the leaf. Uh, and so at this point, you just have to live with it. And uh, th that's usually what causes our hollyhocks to go downhill at some point in the season. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it can spread to other plants, but you know it the the first one you had that got it it it, it probably came floating through the air, and so it's it's not like you know you have some disease and now if you get rid of that plant you don't have the disease it's still in the air if you planted a new hollyhock it would probably get rust too, uh, rust is is a <clears throat> a spore that uh, can can really cause problems for them the leaves get spots and then they turn yellow and and the plant just looks like it's it's dying. Uh, so if you have it again next year and you want to protect your plants, uh, sprays that contain uh, daconil, <coughs> I can, the, it has an ingredient, but if you, if you go to a place that knows what they're talking about and you uh, tell them you need something, uh, a fungicide uh, called daconil, they can, they can get you set up or they'll show you another one that has the same ingredient. And you have to spray before this started. So think back to when you first started seeing spots. About two weeks before that next year, start spraying. And uh, do it about mm, probably once a week. And, and I think that should be good. If you had a rain, I'd go back out and do it again. And you can at least hold off the rust problems pretty well that way. But when you spray, spray on the top of the leaves. And go ahead and spray under the leaves as well. But uh, the... the um, Infection probably started on top. I'm not a plant pathologist, so I'm not sure about that last statement. But anyway, th that is one way you can avoid yeah. it. Yeah, well, it starts from the bottom leaves and goes towards okay. top, but starts from the bottom leaves. Well, the reason that is, it's really not like attacking lower parts of the plant. It's attacking the mm -hmm. leaves that are present. And when those shoots and leaves, when it was smaller, it got on the leaves that were there. And then as the shoot grows mm -hmm. and you get new leaves, those leaves, those leaves are younger. And the older leaves, the disease progresses and progresses. And then you see it down low. We have a lot of plants, like uh, tomatoes, often most of their fungal problems can be down low on the plant because of that reason. It's just that those are older leaves. It has nothing to do with the yeah. fact that they're you know, down some, some other part of the plant.
Got it. Thank you for next year. I need to treat that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And there are other products that can be used for rust, uh, but you know we're we're a long way from next year. So if you're not sure and you don't remember what it was, give me a call back and we'll we'll talk about it some more. Thank you so much for what you do. Alright, thank you, Kanta. I appreciate the call. Mm-hmm. Our phone number is five one five one is nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine. Uh, going back to my childhood in the five one two area code. Nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine or by email garden success at T A M U dot E D U. Garden success at T A M U dot edu speaking of email i got one from roger and he had a plant there growing and uh, he's kind of one wants to know what it is it took off it does a volunteer uh, they cut it down after the frost it came roaring back in spring uh, grows about four feet high has flowers on it that butterflies like uh, and then something that i've never <clears throat> i've never heard about this plant it smells like a freshly cut tomato. When I read that, that threw me. And then I opened the, the pictures, and what you have, Roger, is a lantana. Now, maybe other people agree that lantanas smell like freshly cut tomatoes. That is not something that I had associated with, so that's kind of interesting. But I appreciate that, that email very much, Roger. Um, the lantana you have is, is a, a wild species called lantana camera, and uh, it does produce fruit. Uh, that are small. They look like blackberries. They look exactly like little blackberries. And the birds eat the seed and then they fly around and they do planting and fertilizing in one little flick of the tail, if you know what I mean. And so they come up wild. It's like one of the many plants that birds plant for us. Lantana camera is a fine uh, lantana. It's a little big. It's a little rangy. We have lantanas that have many more color options than a lantana camera. We have lantanas that um, are more compact. There's some that only get 12, 18 inches high, maybe two, some two feet high or four feet high and so on. Camera gets pretty big in time, so you just decide whether you want to keep it or not. That's up to you. Uh, just a note, I think those fruit are poisonous if I'm not mistaken. You might want to go online and check that out or Lantana fruit poisonous. I think they are. So they have little kids going around. They look so much like a blackberry, they might end up in the mouth. I bet they don't taste good though, but anyway, just be a little careful with them. And yes, they're a popular plant for butterflies, so just another reason to have lantanas around, too. Uh, but that's, uh, that's kind of a cool. Thanks for the picture. Very good picture, by the way. And when you send me pictures, uh, I have two requests about the picture. Number one, that it's in focus, uh, because if it's fuzzy, I can't help you. And sometimes, you know, you hold something up with your hand, you try to take a picture, and it focuses on the landscape behind what you're holding up instead of what's in your hand. I can't help you with that. Uh, secondly, <clears throat> that you attach them rather than embed them. When you attach a picture and I open it in a photo app, I can zoom in and see. It's just a lot easier to work with the photo and take closer looks and things uh, than if you embed them into the text of your email. So I'll thank you ahead of time uh, for doing that. Uh, I was looking at some new lantanas. There's some that are now uh, part of the All-American selections. Uh, mail outs that go out to us, those of us in the, the industry. And the, the, um, some of the new ones, the, the reds and the oranges and the yellows are just really deep. And the pinks, lantana can have all those different colors in it and more. And uh, so I, I just am always excited about seeing new plants. Everybody still plants the yellow one. We, 99% of those are probably new gold variety and they're used everywhere. <clears throat> they don't make the little fruit. 
and uh, so people like that but I think we ought to expand a little bit if I have a little border in front of my house and have little antennas planted antennas that are going to get about 12 18 inches so I have a little border of antennas and then I have some other plants intermixed with them so that even when the antennas are cut back there's still something through that bed so just an idea uh, for trying to beautify what you have at the house our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess dot, or at tamu.edu. Let's go around town see what's happening here. The Post Oak Chapter of the Native Plant Society of Texas on today, June 1st, at 6 p.m. at the Lick Creek Park which is on East Rock Prairie Boulevard down in College Station. There's a program on soils, oils, and a very endemic mint, Monarda viridissima. Monarda, you see Monardas growing along the, the roadsides. Maybe you grew up calling them horse mint, or, but just drive, I don't know, somewhere around town where it's more wild on the side of the road than, than manicured. And you'll see these little uh, plants with spikes that can be a little bit lavender colored, lavenderish color, purplish lavender, or, or just white. That's the plant. And there's a lot of cool stuff uh, in our native plants, and they're going to talk about uh, It's entitled Soil, Soils, Oils, and a Very Endemic Mint. And if you want to find out more, go to their website, which is npsot.org, which stands for Native Plant Society of Texas.org slash WP slash post oak. Now the post oak is our local chapter. Program is free. So good thing to do tonight. I think you'll find it very interesting. Plus you meet some cool folks and I don't know, maybe you'd be interested in being part of the Native Plant Society yourself. On Saturday at the Leech Teaching Gardens at AM, they're having a shindig. And now what is a shindig? I think uh, it is a hoopla or uh, I don't know, what's another name for a shindig? Oh my gosh, I, I would figure growing up in small rural areas of Texas, I would have about eight of them because there are more than eight of them. But anyway, at the Leach Teaching Gardens at Texas A&M on Saturday, this Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11.30. That's right on campus. It's on John Kimbrough Boulevard. Um, it, it's not, well, anyway, they, they're having their garden summer celebration. And they're going to be having, you know, all kinds of things for you to see, for kids to see. Uh, the gardens are turning five years old. Wow, it seems like it was yesterday when they started. Uh, and they, oh, those gardens are awesome. They're beautiful. They're just, you, people should visit them at least once a season, if not more often, because they're always changing and they're always beautiful. And they want us to celebrate with them. So the annual summer celebration is the first Saturday in June, this Saturday. Uh, I know our master gardeners are going to be out there. They're going to have a little thing on how to design with flowers and other things from your landscape. So you can kind of walk by the table and get some tips, visit with the master gardeners about how they do it, uh, and go home and make one yourself. I think they'll even have some things for kids to do out there at our master gardener booth. And I know they have a lot of other things going on at the Leach Teaching Gardens here at Texas A&M. Next Saturday, our Brazos County Master Gardeners, that's Saturday, June 10th. Uh, by the way, the, uh, the Leach Teaching Garden event this Saturday is free. Uh, another free event is uh, the Master Gardener Association here in Brazos County is having an open garden day at our Demonstration Idea Garden and Arboretum, which is in North Bryan you know, on Highway 21. So 
Uh, how do you get there? Well, let's say you were in, in uh, downtown Bryan or whatever, and you're heading out Highway 21 to go to Lake Caldwell. When you, before you get to 2818 that crosses under, you want to um, uh, look on the left, and the leech, t or the leech, our our dig is right there on the left. Demonstration Idea Garden. It's where our office used to be. Master gardeners take care of that. They keep it going. There's all kinds of information there. They're going to have someone showing them, showing you how we compost and talk to um, uh, us about rainwater harvesting. There'll be we have a rainwater harvesting system there, so you can go learn about that. Uh, the gardens are divided into areas like the Texas Superstar Garden. There's plants that grow in the shade. They have a little vegetable garden there and an earth kind garden with roses and perennials. There's a butterfly garden, which is also a monarch way station, by the way. Heirloom bulb garden, pass-along garden, water-wise garden, and an arboretum. Some trees that have been planted there uh, that are very good species to know and to grow yourself at home. So this is also free to the public. So I would invite you, it's, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a double positive because number one, you're going to see the gardens and you're, it's, a, it's a beautiful time to be out there and see these plants and get ideas. Number two, you get to visit with master gardeners and that's, you know, the best part of gardening is visiting with other gardeners. Uh, and they can provide direction, advice, they can share how they handle things, how they deal with the, the plants at the garden. And it's just a really good day. That's from 10, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m next Saturday, June 10th, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. next Saturday, June 10th. Uh, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society on Saturday, Saturday June 3rd, that's a Saturday, uh, at 8.30 in the morning, they're going to get going on their Birding 101 bird walk. They do this quite often, uh, and it's a chance for you to go along uh, and learn how to identify birds by sight or by sound. You can hear a bird song and they can tell you what bird that is. They're going to have binoculars if you don't have any, but if you do, please bring them uh, so you can get a closer look uh, at the birds. And if you want more information, go to, this is one word, riobrazosaudubon.org. riobrazosaudubon.org. So there's a lot of things to be out and about doing. I'll save some of the ones a little further out uh, for another show. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Right off the bat in the show, I started talking about something, and I said I was going to come back to it, and now I can't remember what it was that I was going to come. Oh, I know what it was. I remember we're talking about the temperatures. It's going to hit up in the 90s this week. And I've just been kind of researching and reading, learning uh, more about the, the effect of uh, the temperatures on plants. And when this is kind of a surprise because we hit the 90s all the time. But there are a number of plants that when you get up into the 90s, at least midway, uh, some of their metabolic processes start to shut down in that heat. Uh, and, you know, plants also spend more of their water to keep cool. They have that evaporative cooling system where they take up water through the root, roots and then it goes off as a gas in the leaves and when it does that it cools it. Remember the old swamp cooler days? Anyone from a more arid area probably does. Where you run water through and evaporate it and it cools things down and plants, that's how they stay cool. That's how they keep from baking in the summer sun uh, here uh, in our area. 
And so when the plant is having to pull more water through, it's, it's more susceptible to dry conditions. The soil might get drier, will get drier faster because the plant roots are taking it up, pumping it as fast as they can just to try to keep cool. So number one, you got processes that are shutting down. Number two, you've got that issue. Uh, and, and it gets more, more complex than that. But the bottom line is, well, one other thing I'll mention, uh, plants go through a photosynthesis to make energy and I love doing a radio show in a college town because I just assume everybody out there has a PhD. <laughs> no, that's not true. But those the fun facts of science. Um, so w when they make the photosynthesis, then they do a, um, a photosynthesis, but at night, there's also a process of respiration. And it's not just that only respiration is only done at night, but it, it's a lot is done at night. Uh, you know, when you have plants around, they're producing oxygen. But plants also, as part of that respiration process, use oxygen uh, and give out carbon dioxide. Isn't that interesting? You know, the net effect of them is we get more oxygen. But anyway, so uh, when things start to shut down, that process uh, has to shut down because if the openings on the leaves have to close up because the plant's in drought stress, then it can't do the normal process of the photosynthesis and, and respiration and whatnot. So anyway... That's one reason why plants struggle in the heat. And maybe they stay alive, but they don't do much. They just kind of quit producing, quit growing. They don't look good. Certainly with the water issues, they wilt. Uh, and uh, I, I just think that's an interesting thing because you often think, well, it's hot out there, so some plants don't do well. Well, why don't they do well? Well, that's at least part of the reason why uh, plants don't do well <clears throat> in those kind of conditions. If you want to nerd out on it, there's a lot of good information uh, online uh, as well. Out in the vegetable garden right now, uh, we are in the big middle of uh, the entrance to summertime, June, July, and August, and September. I call September a summer month. Actually, May is a summer month too, in my estimation. But um, we're gonna we're gonna just look at June, July, and August as the traditional calendar summer months. Uh, there's not much that happens in terms of planting in the gardens at that time. Uh, all of the common vegetables, you know, beans and, and corn and uh, Swiss chard and uh, maybe beets and I'm thinking of even warm season like uh, garlic and, uh, not garlic, excuse me, okra and um, the uh, southern peas and, and whatnot. We, we start to plant some of those that are heat tolerant, but a lot of the ones from spring we don't. So, for example, you can still plant eggplant, but they're not going to do much until we we get some cooling, a little bit of a break in the temperature later on. Peppers is the same way. Peppers don't set as well in the summer heat as they do in the spring. Now, we may get pepper crops in the summer, but those blooms set in a little bit milder conditions. In some parts of the, the country where you have nice, cool, balmy, or not balmy, but a little bit cooler nights, uh, you can get better fruit set on some things than we do here. Let's see, what do we plant now? We plant sweet potatoes now. We plant okra now. We plant summer greens now, things like amaranth and malabar and purslane. There's a lot of greens, most of which most gardeners in Texas have not heard of that do really well here. Uh, there is, also, by the way, there's a video on Aggie Horticulture's Facebook Live page. And if you don't watch Aggie Horticulture Facebook Live, you should. 
uh, every Wednesday and Thursday, I think almost every Wednesday and Thursday, there's a little video there that uh, you can go watch for free, of course, and uh, you can watch past videos. And if you go look at a past video, I just did one a week or two or three ago on uh, summer vegetables, and I talk about a lot of these vegetables, so I won't go into them on the show right now, but you can go watch it. I think it's somewhere between 5 and 15 minutes, and it's pretty short. Anyway, uh, so summer vegetables can be planted. We can plant melons like watermelons, uh, but you want to go ahead and get that done because things that take a long time, uh, when we get into October, the day length is, ch is getting shorter for sure, and the, um, the temperatures at night are getting a little bit cooler, and it slows plant growth. So if you have something that takes a long time to mature and you get to October and certainly November, uh, it's it's going to slow to almost a halt uh, if it's a warm season plant and you won't finish maturing it. So all those winter squashes like butternut squash and acorn squash, um, pumpkins, certainly one, spaghetti squash is another good one. Those take a while to produce their fruit uh, because the winter squashes are storage squashes. So they're not the succulent little squashes like zucchini and yellow squash that you can stick your fingernail through, uh, they're a big tough skinned that's reached a mature stage. And so don't wait too long to plant those. Uh, I would say get them done by the end of June. Some of them you can extend a little bit further, but I wouldn't go much further than that or you're just not going to get um, the, the results that you were hoping to get. Let's see, we can still plant cantaloupes, honeydews, muskmelons, all those sort of things. If you like the Charente melon, that's a very unusual melon, very nice, uh, aromatic as I'll get out. Those can be planted now, and I did mention okra, of course, my, my favorite summer vegetable. Uh, and uh, it, it can certainly be planted now. It never gets too hot for okra. Uh, in the garden, though, you got to take care of your plants. Remember what we said about the effect of heat on plants. And uh, so if you, uh, we have summer tough plants, but they're summer tough if you water them, if they have adequate water, because they're not only uh, is it hot and often we don't get the rain we should get uh, at other times of the year, uh, but it also, the plants themselves are pumping a lot more water. Uh, and so we have to give them some extra good soakings in order for them to have success. So that's a little tip to keep your uh, summer garden going. Uh, diseases and insects and things like that certainly show up and you can you can send me a picture here at the garden success website or I'm county extension horticulturist over for Brazos County at the Brazos County Extension Office you can send me photos there as well uh, if you have a bug or maybe you want to even put it in a ziplock and drop it off at the office and we'll take a look at it happy to do that uh, for you you know early detection and diagnosis is the key to success so let me use an example you don't see a lot of pumpkin farms around here, right? And uh, there are reasons that pumpkins are often grown in areas that have a little bit cooler nighttime temperatures, uh, that, that um, have a little drier conditions in general, meaning the humidity especially. Uh, and so when you grow these winter squashes, which pumpkins are one, what I have found is that by the time you get about halfway into the season, there is so much powdery mildew or leaf spots or other disease issues on the foliage that the food factories that essentially create that pumpkin that you're about to eat 
uh, they shut down and you, you're not going to get the production uh, that you really want to get. So you got to protect those with a spray that's a fungicide that helps prevent them. And there's plenty of them out there as far as options. There's even organic and synthetic options for powdery mildew. But uh, just keep that in mind as you're growing your garden. Otherwise, you just go, yeah, I tried to grow pumpkins. It didn't work here and blah, blah, blah. Well, you don't have to. You can have success. I was talking to someone the other day, and they told me that um, they have a brown thumb. And uh, that, that term, I don't know. I even use it myself some, but I don't like it. I don't think there's any such thing as brown thumbs, uh, or green thumbs for that matter. I think there are informed thumbs and uninformed thumbs. There are <laughs> accurately informed thumbs and inaccurately informed thumbs. What I'm saying is this. People that that look like they have a green thumb, they know what to do. They know how to prepare the soil. They know how to take care of plants. They, they, they just understand how to do those things. And so if you think you have a brown thumb, well, come to extension events. Come, come to some of our Master Gardener programs. Uh, visit with people. Read the publications on Aggie Horticulture. Oh my gosh, there's a bazillion of great publications on fruit and vegetables, for example on the Aggie Horticulture website. Watch these videos, Aggie Horticulture Facebook Live. Just learn, just learn, learn, learn. Make it a lifetime of learning. And as you do, what you think is a brown thumb is gonna start getting pretty green, greener and greener each time. So don't give up. You do not have a brown thumb just to educate your thumb and your plants will do a lot better. How about that? You're listening to Garden Success. Our phone number is 979 845 5689-845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess.tamu or at tamu.edu gardensuccess at tamu.edu um, so I um, want to go back here and look I had an email question that I did want to cover if I can find it really quick here looks like I have sent it somewhere else Oh, I know what it was. A question about weed control, broadleaf weed control in the grass. Um, there are products that kill broadleaf weeds, but not grassy plants, which includes our lawn and its grassy weeds. But we use those post-emergence, meaning the weed is already up and we're killing an existing weed. Uh, we use those post-emergent products in our lawn to kill the broadleaf weeds, but most of them by the time you get up in the mid to upper 80s, they start doing some damage uh, to the, those products, do some damage to your lawn. You may see it as yellowing uh, or worse, uh, or you may not even really notice it, but they weaken the lawn. And opportunist diseases like take all root rot, which is a lawn killer, uh, can move in. And so we don't want to use those products when it's that hot. There are a few uh, that you can get, uh, one called Celsius, it goes probably up I'm comfortable with it up to about 92 degrees, um, but you know it's not like there's a thermometer gauge there that it just goes from black to white, you know, kind of thing. But just be careful. We've if you see temperatures in the upper 80s and you really have to get out and do it, go ahead and do it. But try to spot treat as much as you can, because you can do a lot of damage to your plants, and you certainly don't want to do that. Well, let's go to the phones. 979-845-5689, uh, and we're going to talk to Beth. Hello, Beth. Hey, Skip. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Um, I have a question about my apple tree. I have a Dorset and an Anna. My Dorset 
uh, bloomed early and my Anna bloomed late. So I know they need each other to pollinate. And mm-hmm. my the Dorset put on tons of apples. Now they're ripening and they're milly. They're they're just not any good. Yep. And I didn't know what what's the cause. Well, the the first thing we would talk about with mealy apples is they got too ripe. They went past their crunchy, juicy stage to the mealy stage, and that happens with apples. Uh, and so it would just mean picking them earlier. And we have a tendency to want to wait on an apple to turn red, or in the case of your dorsets, to turn yellow. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we end up waiting a little too long. The same thing can happen with satsuma oranges. They The texture just changes and the flavor. They get dry, really. Satsuma gets dry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. when we wait a little too long. So picking them early is an important thing. We we also have to realize that when, with any plant, uh, it has this range of conditions that it thrives in. And so it, it has an area of the country where it's going to do better. And you don't see a lot, like I was saying about pumpkin patches, you don't see a lot of commercial apple orchards here in Brazos County, of course. And the reason is uh, the conditions. Uh, and one of the conditions is the chilling hours. And so we can't grow a red delicious or or it's difficult to grow some of the apples, most of the apples that you see in the grocery store that we're familiar with here. So we have to find these varieties that are outside on the edges of the apple germplasm pool, if you will. Uh, And so they're chosen because they can set fruit down here in this low, low, low chilling area, area, area compared to apple country. Uh, but you have to give up some quality things when that happens. And, and I, I think if you were to line up on, in their perfect forms, uh, Dorset Golden and um, uh, Anna, for example, and then compare them to the apples that you see in the supermarket, they're, they're going to be good. I don't want to make it like they're bad eating, but they're not, they're not as good. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, one year we had, and they were great. And then last year and this year, they were just, Millie, they were just, so they you, weren't good. And so, it wasn't depending on the size either. It was just like, they're all not good. So then you've picked them before, and so you know what a ripe one should look like if you had good ones. Because mm-hmm. uh, we don't get that deep, deep red all over the apple, you know, like some right. people are waiting for. Uh, I can't think of another reason other than heat and being too ripe that would cause an apple to be mealy. Uh be nice if we had a pomologist from the, de- the department to call in and tell me <laughs> yeah. what they know. Uh, but uh, that that's the things I would think of. Maybe we haven't had any really like heat spells or anything like that that would have come at a bad time. It just hadn't been that hot. And it so, didn't have anything to do with the pollination of the Anna not being able to pollinate the Dorset? No. Because it came on late? No. Uh, pollen... There, there are very few plants where pollination affects the quality of the fruit. Sweet corn is one. Uh, you can, we won't go into that direction. That's not your question. But most plants, if you pollinate them, the parentage doesn't affect the quality of the fruit. So if you had a hot pepper and a heatless pepper and one pollinated the other, it's not going to be that a heatless pepper suddenly has hot fruit. 
it doesn't work that way. The seeds inside have that genetics, but not the, not the fruit. So it doesn't matter what pollinated your apple in terms of the mealiness. Uh, that that okay. wouldn't be what caused it. What it what what it does do though is apples have several ovaries and each one has a little seed inside. You know how when you cut them across, you got all those seeds. If you don't get them all pollinated, the apple won't grow in size and it'll be lopsided, or it won't grow to the same size. It'll be lopsided. That is affected in the pollination, but not the mealiness. Okay, another question is, you know, it put on like three or four apples, and then I trimmed them down or picked them down to two, maybe uh, maybe one. Does that have any effect on them? No, uh, it just allows for more sugars, carbohydrates, to go into that apple, and it helps it to attain its full size as well. Uh, when we grow apples in pairs, we ideally would thin them to one per cluster because mm-hmm. you'll have a number of flowers that come out in a cluster, and if uh, more than one apple pollinates, you, you're not going to have what you're looking for in terms mm-hmm. of size and everything. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. I think that's, that's about what I can think of in terms of horticultural principles that I know. Uh, so, okay. uh, Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it's always been a good tree. It's just in the last last year and this year it was not producing tasty apples. So, okay. just curious. Well, that that is okay. very strange, and I'll kind of keep my eyes open for that if I visit with one of our uh, pomology specialists in the uh, Hort Department. I'll see if they have any other thoughts, but let's just say I'm 98% sure what I've told you is about all that there is to say. Okay, sounds right. good. Thank, thank you, Skip. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. I appreciate mm-hmm. that phone call. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689. Or if you'd like to reach me by email, it's gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U, T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. I had a question come in about some older oak leaves that are turning kind of yellow uh, and falling off. Uh, and with the picture, the the uh, green leaves look just fine. Uh, and so oftentimes plants will drop older leaves. Now, it could be related to stress, uh, uh, but not always. Uh, sometimes it's just that time of the year or, you know, what the new growth is coming on, the old leaves fall off. If you have a live oak, you probably notice that when the new foliage starts to push out, we get a big drop of live oak leaves. Uh, they can drop all year, but we, we get a big drop at that time, and it's because of the new foliage. It's not because of a stress necessarily on the plant. And this happens a lot. Magnolias, we don't have a lot of southern magnolias around here, but they have a big leaf drop in the spring, and you see these leaves with fungal spots on them, algal spots on them. And people have a, you know, a little panic, but it's nothing to worry about. It's just that, that cycle. And I think that's the case on your, on your oak uh, tree as well uh, in the photo. That of what I, from what I could tell, what I saw. Uh, another question uh, that came in. Uh, let's see here if I can get my thing to come up. Okay, the oh, okay, it was live oak leaves, and then let's see, had a question about growing grapes. A good grape for here, uh, and it, it appears to be for fresh eating. So, assuming this is not just a winemaking question, but a grape question, uh, the best. There's several varieties I could recommend. They're going to require spraying in order for you to get good fruit. They they just are. 
we with our temperatures our humidity our rainfall and everything it is a it, it, grapes are just a magnet for some disease issues and so one of them is the one that if you go to a winery around here they probably will have a wine made from Blanc du Bois Blanc du Bois which is a green grape a little green grape and it makes a decent little white wine uh, and so in fact it makes a, can make a very good white wine uh, but that is one that is tolerant of Pierce's disease. Uh, doesn't seem to get it like it like a lot of grapes do. It, Pierce's disease wipe can wipe out vineyards. Blanc de Bois is a good one. Another one that we used to recommend a lot is is uh, Victoria, uh, and Victoria has real long clusters, uh, also prone to diseases. But you're not going to find a disease-free grape in general when it comes to black rot and uh, downy mildew and a lot of the other things grapes can get. Uh, but now we've kind of become more, uh, I guess, enamored with one called Southern Sensation Seedless. Uh, and so if you just want a fresh eating grape, you might want to look for, not not going to be super, super easy to find. It's not like every store that sells fruit has them. But Southern Sensation Seedless is another one. Uh, just be ready for when you plant it, how are you going to take care of it? Are you going to be able to spray it? And what are you going to grow it on? Uh, you, grapes can grow on an arbor. Uh, that certainly is a nice double benefit that you get the grapes, plus uh, you have the shade that you can sit under. But remember, you're going to have to spray those grapes on the arbor, and if you've got a whole bunch of chairs sitting down underneath the arbor and now you're blasting the, the uh, grapes with sprays, I don't know, you may not be as, as crazy about that idea. Uh, but an arbor is great. I think we ought to have more arbors for grapes in our landscapes. I went to uh, Central Europe one time on a trip, and I was struck by the fact, this was in uh, Bulgaria, I was struck by the fact that every little driveway where there was a car, instead of being a solid metal roof, most of them had a little arbor over them that they parked their car under. And uh, it's because they were trying to use every square inch of what they had to grow food in their, their little small properties that they had. In fact, I saw a grapevine that went up the side of a building, and at the there were um, at each floor there would be a branch that came out and produced fruit and then the vine would go up to the next floor and a branch came out and produced fruit and so it was it was kind of unusual uh, I don't know how successful that would be but uh, at least I don't know I thought it was pretty interesting it made a lot of sense but grapes are grapes are a good thing you can you can really uh, enjoy uh, you know, just being able to grow your own. And some people like to make jelly. Some people like to make wine. Uh, there's a lot of different options. But um, I would I would encourage you, if you're going to plant some grapes, one or two, and you just want a good fresh-eating grape, I would try the Southern Sensation Seedless. I think you will like that one. You may have to hunt around for it, but it would be a good one uh, to check out. A uh, question came in, uh, let's see, this one is from Greg, and it is a tree seen in Arkansas. And what is it? It looks to me like a Bradford pear. Uh, Bradford pear is an ornamental pear, uh, and it is used down here quite a bit because it's one of the few plants that gives us fall color. But I would say, and and I guess bear with me on this one, I would say pretty much down here, the best fall color plants are things you don't want to plant. Poison ivy <laughs> has good fall color. Uh, Bradford pear has good fall color, for example. 
Chinese tallow has awesome fall color. It is a giant weed that has taken over entire pastures uh, through southeast Texas. Bradford pear is beautiful, round shape when it's young, and then as it gets older, about 20 years old, it starts to fall apart. So if you're willing to treat a a woody tree as if it were almost an annual kind of thing where you're, hey, I'll replace it when it's time, well, go for it. Uh, I'm not a fan of Bradford uh, for the reasons I just told you, uh, but boy, they they can give you some fall color. That's one of the, the benefits. Now, if you get far up in the Northeast, they literally are like Chinese tallows on the Gulf Coast. They are taking over pastures. They are taking over fence lines. Uh, it is just a real issue. I don't know why we don't have that same degree of problem here. Uh, that would be an interesting thing to ask an arborist. But anyway, Bradford pear is what you have here, Greg, in the photo. We are. Um, I want to remind you that uh, the AgriLife Extension Office uh, out near the tax office, if you have property, you know where the tax office is. Uh, it's if you go out University across Highway 6 to the east, uh, we're off to the left, uh, not too far from Christopher's Restaurant up there on Boonville Road. And we are uh, continually having different kinds of programs, different kinds of events. I mentioned you could bring a sample or something in. If you have a problem, well, you certainly can do that, and I'd be happy to look at it. Uh, But your county extension office, maybe you're listening from another county. Uh, Every county in Texas is serviced by County AgriLife Extension Office. And uh, if you get way out west where there's more jackrabbits and people, you probably could occasionally see maybe two counties that are serviced by one office. But uh, you have an extension office at your disposal, and it's your link to research-based information, which is what we need to do so we can avoid uh, a lot of the myths that get uh, propagated, if you will, uh, around the Internet. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter, and we'll be back next Thursday with another show. Tell your friends about Garden Success. And remember, you can listen to us by podcast, or you can go to the KAMU-FM website, find Garden Success, and listen to past shows there. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.